We met when I was 19. And you, exotic brown from Italy and gosh, so feminine. It's just past eight in the morning. Our time, my love. I'm ready. Already, your vicious smell fulfills the air. I don't care what people think about you and me. We are like a summer love affair. Your taste is so intense. With every sense, I can feel that you are so intense. But like every summer love affair, eventually it has to end. I leave 250 at the counter and give the barista my compliments. Hey Kyle, it's Frederick from Cologne, Germany. And you just heard a text that I wrote up as an homage basically for the time where I was working as a barista. And um, yeah, you know, just those small moments that you do have during a day where you sit down with a nice cup of coffee. Mm -mm -mm. They can be true magic. Just like a summer love affair, let me tell you that. Anyways, appreciate your work. Keep up the spirit. Choo! Damn, Frederick. That was impressive. I think you just set a new high watermark for voice memos. And let that be a lesson to the rest of you. If you want to send me voice memos now, they need to be in poetic form. Not really, but that was beautiful, Frederick. Tip of the cap. Tip, tip, tip of the cap to you, my friend. Tip of the cap. I can tell that you have an appreciation and love of language, just as I do. I was listening to an interview with the author of Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, a very insightful person. She says that sometimes she'll be reading a book and she'll see a sentence that she loves so much she'll have to put the book down and start clapping. The great fallacy of our time is that learning is only for children. If you want to learn new words, try them out. Write them down on your hand and say them a few times every day, and you will incorporate them into your daily lexicon. I think that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are lifelong learners. That's my bet. And if any of you want to send me a voice memo, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. This episode of the podcast is with Mark Titus. Mark Titus is an award-winning filmmaker and founder of August Island Pictures in Seattle. In 2014, Titus helmed The Breach, an award-winning feature documentary about wild salmon. Mark Titus recently released The Wild, a new feature documentary examining the fate of Bristol Bay, Alaska, and its storied wild salmon runs. I am coming to you from Colorado, where I've been fly fishing a lot. I dig it. It's fun. I've been around water my whole life, but the dynamics of how river water moves are completely different. How there will be these little eddies that will move around rocks and you'll try and hit the fly you know, right next to the eddy. I'm still a total kook, but it's a, it's a nice meditative practice. I see why people equate fly fishing with zen. And I'm planning on being out between Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, maybe Idaho um, all summer, but hunting season doesn't start up for a couple months. So I'm going to be fly fishing a lot until then, recording podcasts and trying to enjoy the small moments, those little cups of coffee, the sunlight shimmering through the clouds. There's a book called... Uh, how to Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie. It's an old book, but it's good. 
and the basic premise of it is that if you want to live a good life and stop stressing out, the key is to condense it down into days. And you can set up little practices for yourself, like writing down three things that would make the day great and three things that you're grateful for. I find that my days are, I don't know, 11% better when I do that. Simple shit. They say habits begin as cobwebs and end as chains. So what habits are you employing in your life? Anyway, going to be out here. If you are listening from any of those states, uh, drop me a line, info at kyle.surf, or you can hit me up on Instagram. Um, I've just been kind of meeting up with different people who listen to this podcast. Um, right now, I'm staying in a fifth wheel in Colorado at someone's house who reached out to me and was like, hey, listen to your show. We need a place to stay for a few nights. I'm like, sure. And guess what? I'm still batting a thousand on cool people who I meet who listen to this show. So high five to all of you. And with that, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Mark Titus. So when did you um, when did you know that you were going to include the the personal thread about addiction in the larger story of salmon conservation? You know, um, I was fifty days into recovery when I got onto an airplane. Almost didn't get on it. Um, the morning I was supposed to go to the airport, I told my wife, I was like, I don't think I can do this. I'd just been out of detox for five days and had started a uh, intensive outpatient treatment and um, I was scared out of my mind and so but there honestly there was something she was the main force but there was something outside of me that was pushing me to keep going and somehow I was having a panic attack at the airport 12 cases of gear and I somehow listened to this outside force and kept going and and then magical things started to happen um, but the moment I wasn't going to include it into the story of the wild. And the moment um, that it did occur to me that it has to be in there was uh, about eight months after that um, filming in Bristol Bay. I sat down to really dig into the bones of the script, the narrative, and what we we're going to go for. And I was sitting at a coffee house and um, I, I started to weep. I, I thought, you know, Everything that I've written so far about this thing is all bullshit. It's, uh, it's got this feel of, hey, I'm, I'm riding in on a white horse to come up to Alaska and tell this story and you know somehow be a part of helping to defend and save Bristol Bay. And the, the truth of it was I was scared out of my mind. That's the truth. So it came from a place of I can't tell this story without including my story which uh, brought me to my knees and um, was the truth. I was out there afraid I was going to relapse on this fishing boat and, um, you know, and, and really scared out of my mind. And so it really initially came from a point of this story has to be told this way because it's the honest to God truth. Good for you, man. Well, it, it rung true in the film. Um, I, I tend to think about, 
how uh, I, I think about narrative psychology a lot and the, mm-hmm. specifically the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the power that mm-hmm. that has mm-hmm. in shaping our decisions. Um, I've found that people don't tend to change their decisions based on facts and uh, you know, new information. They tend to make change the decisions based on the kind of person they believe to be. Um, and many times people tell the story of their lives as the dude riding in on the white horse and them just having an A plus in morality and have never made one mistake in their life, which is totally dishonest and no one trusts them. And then they wonder why no one wants to hear what they have to say. And then there's the story of human folly, which tends to be much more honest and the mistakes that we make. And, you know, that is what a large part of comedy is based on. You know, comedians are building totally. up this, this premise and then they tear it right down. And then everyone laughs and they love them because they're like, oh, my gosh, you're so fucking honest. I really appreciate this. Um, but, yeah, it's it's although most of us know that it still is very terrifying to come out with the truth of your own story and your own failings. Well, look, I, you know, you, you nailed it with uh, comedians, man. They are the hardest working people in the business. I mean, to dig and find that truth and make it um, hilarious up on a stage in front of strangers, uh, completely raw and naked. Oh, my God. My hat's off to them. Um, for me, you know, like I said, it came down to this point, like, I can't live with myself. I can't bear to tell this story without telling the truth of it. And then secondly, it became like, oh. And by the way, this makes for a much more compelling story. Oh, and thirdly, um, my addict is saying the same thing that the CEO of this uh, mining corporation is saying um, in the bigger spectrum, the bigger context of how human beings and salmon have got along or not gotten along throughout the course of history, which is this time it'll be different once Mm. we clear cut this entire hillside. It'll be different. We got the technology to make a stream buffer better. This time, it'll be different when we create a, a, a hatchery to, uh, you know, uh, take the place of the wild systems that work completely perfectly on their own. And, you know, in the case of Bristol Bay, this is the last fully intact wild salmon system on the planet. We don't have that luxury of fucking around with this time it'll be different. Wow. Yeah, it's that that's another interesting aspect of of narrative psychology, right? The the st- what we say we do versus what we actually do and the gulf between those two realities. I mean, I, I think about it even in the trite that's sense. Right. Like you meet the outdoorsy people who are like, I fucking love the outdoors. I'm out there every week. I love fly fishing and surfing. And you're like, you just see all their gear pile up in their garage. And you're like, dude, but you don't know how to do any of that. You just love the idea of being <laughs> that person. But you're not actually spending the time going and putting the work in because it's hard. You know, and and I think that a huge, huge part of life, right, is about trying to narrow that gulf between the person that you say you are and the person that you actually are. Amen. I I so identify with that. I, I got rid of all my skis and all the stuff except for, honestly, um, like some choice fishing gear, uh, 
I, you know, case in point, like I bought a, um, uh, spay rod uh, about a year and a half ago and it sat downstairs for, um, an entire year. And, uh, I was, I, I desperately want to get proficient and being a spay caster. And, um, I just made this bargain with myself, like, look, if you don't get out in the next three weeks with this thing and literally sit down, watch YouTube, talk to my friends who are, uh, spay masters and get your ass in a river and learn this thing, you got to sell it or give it away. Better yet, give it away because <laughs> yeah. you don't deserve to have it sitting yeah. down there. And I did. And I bumbled through it and I stumbled through it. I mean, I've been fishing my whole life, but I love, you know, the, um, the feeling, the physical feeling of spay casting and, and, uh, made myself get out there and do it. And you're right. It's like, you don't have time for everything and by God, you should love, love it. And, uh, and then you should go do it. There's no substitute for whatever it is, skiing or boarding or, um, surfing or fishing. You got to put the goddamn time in for people who don't know what's spay casting spay fishing. So, uh, it's a spay fishing is a form of fly fishing that uses a two handed, um, long, uh, fly fishing pole that, uh, originated in Scotland or in uh, Scandinavia and Scotland and, um, and then became real popular here on big Western rivers, like the Skagit, um, up where I'm living here. And, um, it allows you to cover a lot of water, um, and, uh, big distances without a, a backstroke. You can do it kind of in front of you and you load the rod in a way that allows you to, you know, throw a line a hundred feet without getting your line caught up in the trees. It's really mm. cool. And, uh, do you fish for salmon often? As much as I can, uh, you know, it's, it's a, this is a bigger conversation because do I fish for salmon often? Um, I'm in love with, and maybe even obsessed with an adromous fish and have been since I was two years old. What's an adromous fish um, mean? Anadromous fish means, uh, fish that go up a stream and, uh, lay their eggs and die. And, uh, perpetuate, they go up and down a river. But, um, in the case of Pacific salmon, they, uh, unlike Atlantic salmon or steelhead, they, they do this party one time they go up and they have the big fish orgy and they, um, they lay their eggs and sperm and they die. So that's an anadromous, uh, definition. Um, and steelhead trout, um, uh, salmon all, all fit into that category. And so, yeah, uh, my dad took me out when I was two to a place out on near the coast called CQ, and he caught a thirty-inch or thirty-inch, thirty-pound king salmon. And uh, I had, for whatever reason, he armed me with a, you know, like nineteen ninety-nine uh, Snoopy Zebco rod and reel setup. And I saw this fish come up to the side of the boat and tried to harpoon it with the Snoopy rig, and um, that went straight down to the bottom. But my dad kept the fish, and I was you know, out of my mind for basically the rest of my life for these critters. Mm. Um, so it started at a very early age, but you, you asked, do I get out salmon fishing? Look, we don't have a lot of salmon. I mean, compare comparatively speaking to a hundred years ago here in Puget sound, this part of the world, um, it's a, it's a pittance of what used to be. So I go out now to show my nieces and nephews what it feels like to hold a salmon, let it go if necessary, or, uh, bonk a hatchery fish, um, if we're going to eat it that night. And so they can 
go the whole gamut and actually taste that that sea in the flesh of the salmon. Um, so I do, uh, but I, typically I, I try to reserve like my real gonzo fishing for places that have real, you know, sustainable heavy runs in in Alaska and some parts of BC. Does the taste of salmon change depending on the time of year? Man, that's a great question. Um, I think the, the taste of salmon uh, definitely has to do with the run, uh, what river system they're going to. Obviously, we're made of our what we eat and the environment around us. So you've probably heard of Copper River salmon. Um, Copper River is uh, a very long river. And so when these fish, these anadromous fish, have to go up to spawn, they go clear up to the places they were actually hatched as little fry and um, and go back to that exact spot to spawn. And in places like the Copper River, that's a long-ass way to go, like hundreds of miles. And so, so insane. Once these fish... Oh, dude, it's unreal. It's unreal. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's like got... it, you, you say this stuff, yeah. but like it to really internalize the insanity of some of these runs is like it's all it's almost like our brains can't handle it. It's like saying 100 billion billion light years away or something. It, it is. And here's the, the part that's going to really blow your mind is that once these fish hit the freshwater, they stop eating. So in the case with the Copper River salmon and other long rivers like that they are living off their fat reserves and that's what makes that fish so delicious because we all love fat right we all have butter and fat and um and that's what makes them uh unique and so um time of year um there are spring runs of chinook uh, which is one of the five species of pacific salmon there are fall runs you know somebody who's got a more delicate and uh erudite palate than my own could probably tell you the subtle differences. I love king salmon and sockeye salmon. I love them all, but, um, you know, kings and sockeyes in particular and, uh, summer runs. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite way to cook them? Well, the, the tightest family, um, sort of whiskey tango tradition is, uh, a bottle of French's yellow mustard, equal parts, uh, stick of butter and, uh, fresh squeezed lemon and whisked in a saucepan at low heat. And then you just deluge that over your filet, uh, whatever kind of salmon you're going to have. And, uh, holy shit, is that delicious? <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's the easiest way to do it. Um, and I, it's still, my, it's, you know, it's comfort food. So, uh, it's my favorite. Oh, so tasty. I'm always looking for new recipes. I, um, uh, I have one of those Traeger smokers, so I've been smoking fish pretty pretty often and there's this cool um program in town in santa cruz where i live um with this guy named alan lovewell i've had him on the show before and he runs this company called real good fish and what they do is mm. get local catches every week specifically of fish that are undervalued by the market so the way that he explains it is that like we have all these different species of fish but customers have just been trained to only like four of them so what he's trying to do is bring the market value up in in quote-unquote less valuable fish that are still tasty but like an uh a species like pacific grenadier for example it's like it doesn't look great but it tastes amazing and he has these various pickup these drop points in different neighborhoods and once a week there's a cooler you go pick up the day, the weekly catch and smoke it or figure out different recipes. So I'm, I'm all in on figuring out the best kinds of, uh, 
recipes for fish. My my first experience with it was um, my when I was a kid. My dad took me up to Homer, Alaska, and we got to do a, hal- mm. a halibut fishing trip. And the guys there would uh, cook the halibut in – they would ha- do a cream cheese spread over it, which I never thought would be good, but it's damn tasty, man. Damn tasty. Well, uh, we – this is a longer conversation, but we – you know in the rollout of the film of the wild um, created a, an impact brand as a sister brand to um, kind of be the answer to all the calls to action that we're trying to ask people to do. And one of them namely is to eat wild salmon, eat wild salmon from Bristol Bay because we know it's a sustainable resource. We know it's managed correctly. And the, the catch all phrase is eat wild, save wild. If you demand that wild salmon on your plate, you're going to demand the habitat sufficient for it to keep coming back to your plate in perpetuity. In other words, you're, we're asking folks, like, what do you value more in the case of uh, Bristol Bay and the proposed pebble mine? Uh, a, a salmon fishery that can make itself as a food source forever versus a uh, copper and gold supply that will make some people very, very rich for a very short period of time and then leave a uh, tremendous uh, liability, if not a complete disaster, for the people that have lived there for time immemorial. Was this so? Was this organization already was this organization already established, and you partnered with them? Tell me a bit more about the organization. Um, so th- this, like you know, any kind of ideas, uh, harebrained ideas that we come up with, um, this came out of necessity. Uh, Back in 2015, I was taking my first feature documentary around the country. It was called The Breach, and people it, that that movie ended on the story of Bristol Bay. And at that time, it was pretty hopeful note under the current Obama administration. Their EPA had put in preemptive uh, protections for Bristol Bay. So, still, people after the film would say, "Well, what can I do to help wild salmon? What can I do to, you know, perpetuate this this feeling I have?" and um, I honestly didn't have like a turnkey answer for him. It was always the same kind of thing of, well, you know, write your members of Congress and give to your favorite NGO and hope for the best. And I thought, you know, we could probably do better than that. And so it really came down to, you know, what you led with here is, you know, voting with your fork, um, voting sustainability by supporting businesses that are finding unique ways to um, – to uh, address our our food needs uh, like undervalued fish or in Bristol Bay's case, you know, saying with your dollar that I support this fishery and the 14,000 jobs it brings every year, the $1.5 billion to the American economy. And so I'm going to use my dollar to say I support that thing as opposed to um, taking rolling the dice with a proposed uh, copper and gold mine. So Short answer is I made this uh, this up. Uh, this brand came to be in a way to address that, you know, that question of folks saying, "What can I do?" And I'd say, "Well, eat, you know, eat wild sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay." And they say, "Well, okay, great. Well, how do I get it? Where do what do I do with it when I get it?" Well, you're gonna put cream cheese on it first, and then you're gonna put some mustard on it. What do I do with it? And you're gonna smoke it at low temperature all day. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Hell yes. And and you said the cream cheese part. Look, uh, we, so in its current phase, we're, we're rolling out, a, um, you know, the 
the website, it just went live here last week, and we've got this awesome chef um, on board with us here named Peter Dykstra, and he he's created 50 recipes for salmon. I didn't even think about half of these things, poss- you know, even the possibility of them, but cream cheese was one of them in like this puff pastry thing with uh, leeks and lemon, and it's unbelievable. I you never knew it could be so good. So people can buy wild sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay right now via this website? That's right. So our primary, we've got all, all kinds of things in the hopper. In, in essence, Ava's Wild is selling three experiences, food, stories, and travel, all centered around place. In this case, Bristol Bay. So food from Bristol Bay, stories about Bristol Bay. And um, obviously, we're in 2021, travel to Bristol Bay. And so, yeah, we are selling at the immediate as the film, The Wild, heads out on our virtual tour. We're selling a Bristol Bay experience box, which will bring to people's doors a uh, a couple of frozen sockeye salmon fillets from Bristol Bay, wild salmon, uh, a really tasty rub from one of our local star chefs here, Tom Douglas, um, a hat uh, with the artwork done by um, one of the characters in the film, who's this amazing kick-ass Yupik mom who lives off the grid named Abayok Moore. And then um, lastly, a, a set of um, you know recyclable cardboard uh, VR goggles that folks are going to get a QR code to and be able to actually take a VR experience of being immersed in Bristol Bay in their home and kind of have like this box for a, like a dinner party to you know have a conversation about what's at stake in Bristol Bay and saving what you love, which is the you know the core of the movie. Mm. Did you say uh, the woman is from the Yupik tribe? What is that? So the uh, indigenous folks uh, in the Bristol Bay area have been there for well over four thousand years, and three uh, main distinct. Uh, tribes and uh we're talking about yupik dena and aluktik um and our friend abayuk moore who is uh one of the luminaries in the wild is a, a beautiful painter uh she's a beautiful artist um single mom lives off the grid is raising her kids off the grid in the wilderness in alaska and teaching them in the uh, traditional ways of what it means to be yupik and that's that's where she comes from that's her people mm. So um, let's take it back to, you know, the idea of making this film. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in the process of that, the struggles that go on behind the scenes of the story. Um, you know, I think that one of, one of the great docs of the last 10 years or so was The, um, the Cove movie about the dolphins in Japan and one of the reasons I loved yeah. that that story so much is because they told the story of how they made that story and the trials and tribulations that they right. faced along with it um, so I want to take it back to the beginning in terms of um, finding characters for this film how do you go about finding mm-hmm. those characters what does a good character mean to you um, how do you engage with them? Any any stories in particular about that? Because I've the reason I ask is because I think there are a lot of potential storytellers out there, whether they're filmmakers or podcasters or writers. And in my experience, the essence of a good story it begins with good characters. The story comes from the people that you're able to get on camera. 
Um, so what was your experience like finding these characters and, and any stories in general about that? Uh, such a great question. And, um, and being a documentary, you know, it's not as scripted as uh, narratives, clearly. Um, and so, you know, bearing in mind, when I got to Bristol Bay to start filming this thing, um, you know, I was 50 days into recovery uh, from being out of detox and um, really kind of scared shitless and, you know, uh, didn't have my wits about me so much. But I was doing a couple other things at the same time to, to make money. Um, I was shooting a, um, a brand film for a friend who also has a, a, a salmon company called wild for salmon on the East coast. And, um, and also shooting a little, an interview with one of the, um, fishermen out in the Bay that I'd always heard of from the movie red gold, uh, a guy named Ole Olson. Um, but I'd never met myself. And so, um, one of my compatriots said, Hey, here's how you find Oli. Um, he's got this number. It works sometimes, uh, give him a call and you know, you guys will figure it out. And that's a very Bristol Bay way of doing things. It's like nothing really actually happens until you get on the ground there. You can put something on the calendar, you can do emails, you can do all the stuff and it doesn't mean shit until you actually get there because it works on Bristol Bay time. Well, as it turns out, I got off the, I got off the aircraft, uh, to in, in the little airport there in Dillingham and, uh, was going to get my bag and turned around and literally ran into this giant guy's chest face first. And, uh, sure as shit, it was Ollie Olson. And, uh, I really had no idea how I was going to track him down because the phones sort of work there sometimes and don't work other times. And, um, I ran right into him and, uh, being the Bristol Bay way, he said, uh, well, you found me and, uh, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And where are you staying? And all of a sudden, all three of these major hurdles that I needed to, uh, overcome to figure out my next step, like, where am I staying tonight? What am I going to eat? And how the hell do I find Ole Olson happened in one fell swoop. And, um, at that time I didn't, have a full lineup of characters uh, completely in my mind or certainly not on paper um, in terms of representational people uh, from Bristol Bay. And Oli very quickly became one of them at the core of it. Um, and uh, honestly, during the time I was up there the next several weeks filming, um, in the very Bristol Bay magical way, these people kind of just unveiled themselves as I went along. Um, one of them, uh, became, um, uh, was, uh, really j just again, following my nose, uh, was the sister of, um, a, a woman that was helping me out, uh, scouting and kind of being a fixer on the ground. And she runs her own processing company up there called Quijack Fish Company. And, uh, her name's Amanda Vlasheski. And literally, uh, after meeting her, um, and about to take off and leave the area, her sister's like, well, why don't you, uh, give Amanda an interview? And I did. And of course she was incredible and became one of the, the corner characters in this thing as a woman entrepreneur running and owning a business in Bristol Bay in a very man's world. So these things happen kind of organically. And if you've been to Bristol Bay or Alaska in general, um, 
you wouldn't be surprised. They kind of happen that way in a very magical way. I love those kinds of stories, especially in the small towns when it really does happen on the ground. It happens yep. like, oh, I went to the bar and I met the guy, and it, like, and then it all happened from there. You know, it's it shows it the power and, and the importance of fixers in a documentary crew. Um, I don't think that people really rec- mm-hmm. recognize that, like, you know, if they're watching a, a Vice documentary or something, there's a producer. And there's a fixer who that producer is talking to, and that fixer is giving them all the contacts they need. And many times, as you said, you don't ha- you have a general idea of the story that you want to tell, but you don't know who is going to come alive on camera. And you need to be able to make those adjust- adjustments on the fly. Um, I love so – this is a totally, t- totally no tangential story, but fu- a funny one about a filmmaker – changing the script in a a narrative film so um there was a so i'll 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 give you the backstory so there was this dude who the young guy who was uh sleeping on a buddy's couch and the buddy was working on this film and they apparently needed a guy who was going to play like this older high school uh character in um in this movie uh oh gosh i'm i'm I freaking hate flailing my way into stories that I halfway know. But anyway, this, the dude who sleep on the couch, total <laughs> loser, is like, oh, cool. I'll go – I'll uh, try out for this film. So that he, he walks in. They write him in and he has just this one scene of like being an asshole, asshole senior in high school <laughs> guy. And they're like, who is this guy? This guy is freaking hilarious. So they keep <laughs> writing him in like more and more into every scene turns out the dude was matthew mcconaughey and the movie was um <laughs> what's what's the movie where mcconaughey is is the senior it's not fast time at ridgemont oh high God. where he's like oh everyone someone's screaming it out right now i need to know this i grew up but they always stay the same i grew up yeah uh, i grew up but they Jesus, stay the Mary same age yeah be a lot cooler if you did in texas dazed, and dazed confused. yeah dazed and right? confused that was that was matthew mcconaughey's <laughs> first film and he was supposed of to basically course. be an extra but then they but the de- director saw him they're like this guy is hilarious he's so good so they just kept writing him into scene after scene after scene and then you have the you have this the shot i get older and they say the same age <laughs> That's so perfect, and it, it's totally like that. In uh, at least in the way that I work in in the um, documentary world too, uh, I have, uh, as you mentioned, people on the ground, producer, fixer. They're in you know invaluable. Um, another fixer I should mention in uh, Alaska was a, a dear friend of mine now, a, um, a guy named Chris Boatwright, who manages uh, a uh, fisheries research camp for the University of Washington up there, and. He literally set me up with uh, all the humans that were um, in the know, on the ground, and can make things happen. Um, but you know, in far as, as how the story evolves, uh, there's there's definitely, like you said, there's people that light up on camera whose stories just emerge, and then there's um, there's the work in on the back end in um, in the edit room and in the writing, and um, you just. You, you just never know, like the McConaughey story you're telling here, it, you never know what's going to uh, lend itself, um, give that little spark to the story that you need. Um, I've had 
I don't know how many iterations of, oh, yeah, we're going to go with this storyline because there's some conflict there and some drama. And uh, this woman was involved in this, um, you know, uh, super interesting story. And it doesn't end up making it into the film because um, it just the other things emerge and um, become the storyline that the story wants. It, it, it creates itself in that way. And um, it, uh, it certainly was the case here with, with the mm. wild. How long from beginning and to end did it take to make the wild? So, you know, it's, I, I mentioned the, going out on the boat to start filming in Bristol Bay and that was in May or sorry July of 2017 but it really the the idea of creating the wild as a follow up to the breach um started in 2016 and originally it was going to be um a TV length version of my love story for wild salmon uh which was um you know the breach essentially my first film and uh, what ended up happening was, well, um, I went through a massive period of depression, and uh, it it really was um, completely catalyzed by uh, the 2016 election. And um, what was for me my whole life a uh, use of alcohol as a complete uh, social tool is something to you know, spark a conversation and, and the usual stuff, man, going to school and, you know, partying and all of it became, uh, something I relied on every single day to deal with the feelings that I didn't want to deal with anymore. And so, uh, in 2016, I, I went through about an eight month process of trying to find my bottom and I eventually did, um, and it was really based on grief. Uh, and, um, I did in May of, 2017. And then, um, as I've talked about, you know, I, I somehow after getting out of, uh, detox and getting into, uh, recovery with, um, outpatient and finding a community, a recovery community, um, I said, you know what, this, this idea about a, um, a film, uh, this, as an extension of the breach really needs to be its own thing. Um, and it started to emerge with the characters I started to run into in Bristol Bay and frankly with the stakes in Bristol Bay um, with, uh, you know, what is at stake for the people that live there and the proposed pebble mine um, and the fishery that could remain forever if it's left mm-hmm. alone. Just as a, a clarification point, what is a pebble mine? And what comes out of it? So the pebble mine refers to a huge uh, deposit of gold and uh, actually leading with copper, mostly copper, gold, and molybdenum. And it's located about 110 miles as the crow flies up from the salt water at the head of two of the biggest, the two biggest river systems. Uh, the biggest salmon-producing river systems in Bristol Bay. Um, the the nature of this deposit is such that it's it's vast. There's a ton of uh, material, really, you know, precious material there, uh, such that it is worth, in current prices, estimated somewhere in the five hundred billion dollar range. Uh, it's half a trillion dollars, but 
it's a low-grade sulfur mine, which means that you got to pull out a ton of material and process it in order to get to the good stuff. And what's left behind in the tailings or the, the, the effluent, the stuff that's left behind, are things that can leach into uh, the, the landscape. And, uh, and in the case of um, several mines here of recent memory, um, have cataclysmic tailings dam failures. So in other words, the, the dam that holds all the effluent um, back from the system literally bursts and sends it flowing uh, down into uh, the riparian system below it. Now, you know, uh, it's, it's a cute name. Uh, pebble sounds like a little pebble, and that was, I'm sure, by design. Um, what it really is is uh, something that is uh, North America's largest uh, open-pit copper mine if it's fully developed, and it would have to be fully developed to be economically viable and something you could see from space, literally in the headwaters of the world's last fully intact salmon system. Um, and again, to, to reemphasize what that means, uh, salmon are a, a, they mean a lot to many people, especially the First Nations indigenous folks on North America. And they are a, a food supply that makes itself without human interference year after year. So what you're proposing with Pebble, the cute sounding name of the very large, giant, potentially lethal uh, open pit copper and gold mine is trading one resource uh, that would enrich a very small amount of people for a, you know, a, a vast amount of wealth for a short period of time, a hundred year time span versus a food system that regenerates itself and can continue to do that and bring the jobs necessary to the region forever. You got an interview with one of the heads of the Pebble Mine. I forget his name. Uh, what was mm-hmm. what was it like doing those you. interviews, and how did you approach him to get those interviews? Because I, I thought that that was one of the more interesting aspects of the film is getting someone from the other side. I've, I've tend to have a hard time trusting documentaries that don't represent the opposing perspective. Um, so I appreciated that you included that guy in there. Yeah. Um, so I interviewed two people uh, from the Pebble Limited Partnership, uh, which is the forward-facing uh, entity that represents the project. Uh, it, the The actual owner of the um, the deposit is uh, the leaseholder is um, – Northern Dynasty Minerals, which is a Canadian company. Uh, it's not even an American company. But um, I was able to interview uh, John Shively, who is the chairman of the board, um, who, when I made the breach, was their CEO. And I was able to interview Tom Collier, who is their current CEO uh, for the film, for The Wild. Um, and the way that came about was, uh, again, like talking about getting on the ground, actually meeting people, spending time with people, being present with people. One of the characters I interviewed in Bristol Bay is a uh, um, an indigenous woman um, who had uh, been asked to advise on this project from an indigenous perspective and had relationship with uh, these folks and was able to um, to then make an introduction and so um, th- that in itself was a journey just uh, to to. To, you know, connect those dots. But when they finally came together, 
And um, I flew to Anchorage to meet with these guys on two separate times to interview them. Uh, it, for all the world, felt like, you know, Frodo going into Mordor. I mean, um, I'd been, you know, think about it like uh, you visualize going to the Super Bowl your whole life. And, um, you know, and then finally, in, in a very inverse kind of way, that day arrives. I've been visualizing for years, like, what is it really like inside of, um, you know, the headquarters of this this outfit that is doing their best to try to, you know, extract the resources from this place. And sure enough, that's where I ended up. It's marching right in there. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it felt pretty, pretty, pretty alone and, um, you know, vulnerable at the moment. But when I was doing these interviews, uh, I was just there by myself and, um, uh, you know, setting all the gear up and doing the, the interviews. And, uh, I, I will say that Everybody there, uh, especially those two guys, were complete gentlemen. Uh, they were incredibly generous with their time and polite. And, you know, while we've got very uh, disparate views on how to move forward, especially in this region in Bristol Bay and, you know, what to value out of that region, um, I certainly, you know, can tip my hat to them. They're really good at what they do. Um, nobody gave Pebble a, a prayer about getting into permitting or having the, the chance to get into permitting. But then along came the, the Trump administration and the Dunleavy administration in Alaska, and then uh, Tom Collier, who's the current CEO and uh, um, who has a lot of regulatory experience as a lobbyist in D.C. Um, and uh, they kind of had a perfect storm, and here they are on the doorstep of being permitted potentially this summer. Uh, if nothing happens and there's not uh, a large public mm. outcry. So was it Tom Collier you said that was the lobbyist in D.C.? Okay. That's right. Yep. And, it, all, um, it all comes back to how these campaigns yeah, are financed, doesn't it? Every single issue just flows it, it upstream to politicians and how they get elected. It, it, it does. And, um, you know, look – I credit where credit is due. Like he's really good at what he does. Um, and, um, uh, still in all that, that sort of further motivates me to, you know, try to be a voice for, uh, one voice of many who've been working really, really hard and, um, calling out for many years to, uh, put a spotlight on this very sacred place that is unique in all the world, um, in terms of its untouched wilderness that's there. And the systems that are uh, still perfect the way that they are, that used to be like that here in the Pacific Northwest and in California, for that matter. I mean, the Sacramento River was a massive, massive salmon river uh, producing it was one of the, the biggest in the world. And um, in a few short years, uh, under two decades, it was nearly wiped out. And um, human progress, if you can call it that, has uh, has shown that over and over again when we come into salmon territory and are trying to extract a resource that's uh, valuable to human beings, um, the results inevitably end up poorly for the salmon. And they are a keystone indicator species as to how we are doing on this planet in terms of um, the health of our planet and our part in it. So if this was an over-the-top success in your mind – Movies getting out right now. People are starting to participate. They're starting to make their voices heard. What would that look like? We just released The Wild um, as a virtual tour 
here, and um, that came out of what was supposed to be a physical tour on the ground across 50 cities in the U.S. Um, and uh, my hope is that we get enough people to um, be able to see the film and have an emotional uh, connection and experience with the film to write the Army Corps of Engineers and say, hey, look, this, this, is, this permitting process that we're currently in um, Pebbles being fast-tracked during a pandemic. Uh, the people on the ground in Bristol Bay are, are just trying to make sense of their daily lives um, with an influx of uh, fishermen that are coming from out of state, a possible pandemic reaching their communities. This is no time to be rushing a permit process. Let's put that on hold until we get a vaccine for COVID, until this, this immediate crisis is passed. So that, to me, would be the benchmark goal is to pause this process until uh, we have gotten through the immediate turbulent waters. And is there a link that you can point people to, to write the Army Corps of Engineers? Yep. So um, we talked a bit about creating Ava's Wild, uh, which was a sister brand. And ultimately, the, the, the real underlying goal of that was to have one central source point to put people to and to do all the actions, whether that's with their choice, their voice, or their vote. So Whenever people are finished watching the film, we're sending everybody to avaswild.com. And that's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. I love it, man. Good work you're doing. Do you have any, um, do you have any plans Thank to you. go uh, up and show the film in Bristol Bay? Yeah, I, it's, it's a little dicey right now. Um, obviously, I'm super mindful of the um, need to be uh, careful. Um, I'd like to get to Bristol Bay this summer, but only if it's safe and appropriate. And um, fortunately, we were able to show the film uh, first to the people on the ground uh, in Bristol Bay last summer before we started the festival run. Um, we had our world premiere here in Seattle at the Seattle International Film Festival. And then the very next screening was in Naknek, Bristol Bay. Uh, and there was over... 500 fishermen and um, local folks that were there to see the movie and we ate wild salmon and it was nice man yeah i love it well good work you're doing and i will link to everything below i appreciate you putting the time and energy to make such an important film and uh i hope people see it thank you so much kyle i love your show and appreciate the opportunity to talk about saving what we love and um we'll uh we'll see you down the road that's our show. I'm going to play out a song called Leaving by West of Malbay, and I will link to their band page in the show notes below. If you want to send me a voice memo, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. Just keep it under a minute, and I'd love to play it on the podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful day. Go give someone a high five, get out in the water, and I will talk to you very, very soon.
Bye.